Nahum. Uh, this is our last minor prophet we're going to deal with in this series. I reckon we've done about 10 of them or nine. Um, but we want to look at uh, Nahum. If you've got your Bibles, turn there and look there. Let me read some magnificent words. Nahum, amongst all the minor prophets, is the most glorious of poetic utterances. If you're into poetry and, of course, and you understand the construct of the, the glorious way that Nahum is written, it is the most shocking, the most descriptive, the most glorious, the most poetic of all of the minor prophets. It is to be reared with an understanding of the descriptive nature. And yet, chapter 2, chapter 3 is shocking in the nature of the language it's used. The church historically has been uncomfortable with Nahum because of the language. And as Anabaptists, really uncomfortable in terms of the way that we we look at this and the description of the the, nature. destruction of Nineveh that is, is taking place and the, uh, the uh, battle scenes that are vividly created and scholars have talked about Nahum throughout the years. And in fact, the first chapter, uh, if you were to able to read it in the Hebrew, uh, each line takes the letter of the Hebrew alphabet and works its way through. So it has that poetic rhythm of God speaking and of, of God's judgment and of God's blessing backwards and forwards that exists in that, but following the uh, letters of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. And as you can see in uh, beautiful words like, The Lord is slow to anger, verse 3. But great in power, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways is a whirlwind and the storm, the clouds of dust of his feet. What a lovely verse that is. The clouds of dust of God's feet. Do you know God's got feet? He's got dusty feet here. He's got grieving feet He's got feet that are, are, are glorious feet. And it talks about feet in Nahum in verse 15. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. That's interesting because the way that they invaded Nineveh uh, was through drying out the rivers. And the prophetic power that comes through Nahum as he sees what God's doing. Basham and Carmel wither and the blossom of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? nation. Well done, Jasmine. That's amazing. I didn't even tell about that. I sent her all my notes, but it's a beautiful poetic utterance. So what does it have to say to us today? Where are we moving forward as we look at uh, uh, Nahum? Well, the story of Nahum is really about the destruction of Nineveh. Now, many of you remember, we talked about Nineveh uh, in the story of Jonah. 
and about his rebellion to not go and preach. And revival came to the Assyrian capital. Revival came to the Assyrian world whereby he went and preached and they turned from their wicked ways and God's power moved in in might. Quite amazing. And yet after 150 years, Nahum, who is from northern Israel, who has grown up under the occupation of the Assyrian, God has now had enough. He says, it is time. It is the end. Nineveh is so corrupt. Nineveh is so evil. Nineveh is so broken that what I want to do is I'm coming and I will wipe it off the face of the earth and it will disappear. Now, you may not know this, but Nineveh did disappear. Unlike Jerusalem or Athens, like I guess like Thebes or Troy, Nineveh, the great city, completely disappeared. In fact, they had no idea where Nineveh was. Hunt down Nineveh. They knew, of course, he was by a river, but they had no idea until an English traveler in 1820 was sat there having a cup of tea, looking across the river. And as he looked across the river, he said to the local people, what on earth is that rubble over there? And they said, don't know. He went across the river, poked around, and he discovered Nineveh. And so they excavated it. 1820, they had no idea where it was. Because God said, I'd finish with you. And when God speaks, God does it. God's judgment is unstoppable when God's judgment comes. They dug it all up and they've developed the site. But even in recent history, the last five years, when ISIS moved into the area, they... What was done, they actually continued to blow up more of the, the remains and, and no, they couldn't stop the destruction. Nineveh keeps getting destroyed, even to this day, even to this last five years, as ISIS have been present on that land. They've destroyed Nineveh because of its idol worship and because of so much and because of what it represents, I guess. And of course, across the river there, Nahum is buried according to tradition. He died in that land where he went and preached. He died where he was willing to go. So what is it all about? Who is this book communicated to? Well, this book is communicated to, of course, the Assyrian Empire. And it's a proclamation of God's intervention. God has now had enough. He prophesies the disaster of the enemies and deliverance for God's people. But not only for God's people, but for the nations that, of course, are under the rule of the evil and the power of the Assyrian people. And so the first chapter rejoices in the triumph over tyranny and that God is the deliverer and God is the powerful one and God is moving. And the next two chapters in Dolby Stereo, in high definition, in 4K brilliance, there is this magnificent description that is shocking and difficult to work our way through with our sensibilities. How God says, I am going to destroy this city and I'm bringing judgment on Assyria and this is how I'm doing it. And the prophet Nahum experienced the most glorious, most intense spiritual download from the Holy Spirit right down to the uniforms that the soldiers would wear to capture the city and right down to the strategy they would 
would use to take away this city about drying up the, uh, the riverbed. And that's how they got into, into the city. And it talks about this. It even talks in this scripture we read for a moment. The rivers run dry. Yes, they do. When they ran the river dry, they got into Nineveh. And then God brought around his purposes. So they had revival with Jonah, and 150 years later, God's judgment came. I think it was Calvin that said that really what took place was that God's judgment was just postponed. It was Luther that made the point that they had Jonah preaching, and yet... That's all they had, and they backslid from what God had done in their lives. And yet we know that we have the Bible, that we have the Holy Spirit, that we have the Bride of Christ. And yet there is a danger in each of our lives that we can so easily backslide from what God is doing in our lives. And I realize we don't use the term backslidden these days, do we? It's kind of like a phrase from the 80s. Are you a backslider? Uh, You know, are you a backslider? It's that kind of, we don't preach that. You don't probably hear me preaching backslider very often. It's a bit of a a a thing I grew up with in the 80s of that kind of idea along with small minis and, and, and... Scary films about the second coming of Jesus and, and these kind of things. But, but it's very serious that we realize that Nineveh's fall and their demise was down to their unwillingness to maintain what God has spoke to them through the revival in the city. And we have to understand that we have to be careful in our own spiritual walk. That we don't backslide. It's easy to walk away. It's easy to lose our passion. It's easy to lose our our excitement for the work and the power of Jesus Christ. It's easy, even though we have all of the Bible, even though we have all of the prophets, even though we have all the glorious New Testament, and we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And at some point, like the 333 that gave their life to Christ at Garden Lake Camp, you and I have given our lives to Jesus Christ, but we still have to keep our faith alive and dynamic because we are all in danger of of sliding away, of giving up the race that God has called us to so wonderfully do. And so we have this glorious verse. Look, there on the mountain, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate you festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Does verse 15 sound familiar? Should sound familiar. Of course, Isaiah 52, verse 7, picks this up. Well, another hundred years or so later. Isaiah prophesies, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. See, the first chapter deals with the great beauty that now let's send the runners out because we've been under the oppression of the Assyrians. They have been cruel. They have been ruthless. They have been horrific. They have, have 
enslaved us and ruled over us. They have been corrupt and we have been slaves to an empire. But now send out the good news because the runners can go on the mountaintops. Because the beautiful feet can run. Why? Because... There is liberation, there is deliverance, there is good news on the mountains because God has moved against the tyranny of the Nineveh uh, city and God is proclaiming deliverance and freedom. See, Nineveh, you could say, is a type of the fallen world, the corruptness, and yet we have the good news of Jesus Christ to go out and to proclaim That there is deliverance in Christ. There is salvation in Christ. There is hope in the cross. And that we have the greatest message in all of the world. And God has called us to get our feet moving. And God has called us to declare the glories of God throughout this world. And your feet are beautiful. Romans 10 verse 15. Paul requotes this idea again. I don't have beautiful feet, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a runner, so I'm always suffering with my toes becoming black. So regularly, um, like every three or four months, a toenail will drop off. I even went to the... I'm uh, sorry to share that with you. <laughs> I feel we need to be at that kind of level in our relationship. It can be embarrassing for my wife occasionally when I knock my toe and Anyway, um, I went to the hairdressers the other day and, and we were chatting and then she looked at my feet and she said, what's wrong with your feet? <laughs> I said, keep your eyes on my hair. Um, feet aren't beautiful. Um, I've got a friend who's now a bishop in the Anglican church. He's six foot four. He has a diocese. We grew up and we preached together. And he is, he's got the ugliest feet in the world. I'll be honest. And when we were, I guess he was 17, I was 18 years old, but he was 17. He went and in my hometown, he was visiting from Saskatchewan. He went and, and shared and witnessed outside the big local high school. And all the kids were coming out and he'd stand there. You'd notice him even then. He was thin as a rake. Now he's got a big grey beard, Anglican, and uh, a big cross, and bishop. And, um, and he's preaching away. And, and I was reminded of this. He called in and we had dinner together at our home. And he's preaching away. And, and, and the kids are all listening. And, and they're mocking him and joking. And a young girl comes by the side of him and starts to chat a little bit. And he takes her address and he gets back to to Saskatchewan and he writes her a long letter uh, uh, about the power of Christ to save her and how God can move in her life. And she received that letter as a 14-year-old and she read it and held on to it. And then when she was 17 years old, she finally gave her life to Jesus Christ. And that was my wife. He's got ugly feet. But in the kingdom of God, he's got beautiful feet. Beautiful. Because anybody that is willing to take the message of Jesus Christ to a broken, dark world, God says, how beautiful are those feet. 
Because it's a message of deliverance. Because it's a message of life. Because it's a message of hope. Because now we can rejoice that here, there, the mountains quake. But, and, and, and all that is happening, whatever they, they plan. Look, the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. Who proclaim peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. And fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. I don't know what's coming against you in your life. But I want you to know that you're on the right side. And this tells us the story of of complete deliverance. How is this going to happen? Interestingly, the Syrians' symbol was their great power, that they saw themselves as lions or even greater than lions. And all the Assyrian uh, ancient artifacts are this the lion, the power, the strength. And, but God wasn't impressed. God was going to turn the Assyrian army that was the great lion into a toothless, powerless lion. And God was going to send an army that would loot the city and the city would never be rebuilt. And God would declare that that your lion's den. Where, he says in chapter 2, where now is the lion's den? The place where they fed their young. Where the lion and the lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear. Where now are you? Nothing more powerful than... The king of the beast, the lion. Unstoppable. The predator. But God says, you feel so safe. You feel so powerful, Assyria. But where now? Peter teaches us that we have an enemy that that circles us like a lion. An enemy that comes against us. But I want to remind you that the work of the enemy has been defeated by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you are basically toothless. You think, such lovely language here. You you, you fear nothing. You fear absolutely nothing. But the one thing you should fear is is the judgment and the anger of God moving against you. That is what you should really fear. I think we learn from the prophets that God is in control of the nations and will judge the nations. And it's a foolish nation that turns their heart away from the values and the principles of God. It's a foolish nation that turns their heart away. And we don't like to talk about the anger of God. We're uncomfortable, of course. But God does get angry at injustice, angry in this world. God takes a long time to get angry, we read in Scripture. He simmers for a long time. And we hold it back. Do you remember when we used to boil milk on the stove and not in the microwave? Maybe you still do that. 
But as a kid, I remember making my Ovaltine or cocoa or Horlicks. Had to boil the milk. But if you take your eye off the simmering milk for a moment, that film of protein will create. The heat will come. And it's as if it's been simmering for so long and taking so much time. And then all of a sudden, it boils over the stove. It's God's anger. It takes a long time to get there. But when it turns, it's unstoppable. And God had simmered against the Assyrians for so long. And don't be under any illusion. God is looking at nations today. God is looking at our actions. God is looking at the way we are. You know, some people would have written uh, prolifically that the, the British Empire who the sun never set on the British Empire, arguably the largest and the greatest empire of all history. At least that's what the English like to say. Um, the moment we washed our hands in the 40s of Israel and said, we want nothing to do with you, was sort of the moment the British Empire, whew, within 10 years we'd lost everything. Who knows if that's true? I know God watches nations. I know that when we saw the tyranny of Russia and the Russian Empire in the 80s, and we saw the Berlin Wall come down, that years before, and certainly for the two years before, people were praying and speaking to the wall that it would come tumbling down and that God's judgment and God's justice would come into Eastern Europe. And on that day, the walls fell, not just because of political pressure, because God said, there's enough is enough. And the prayers of the saints came and spoke and the walls came tumbling down. See, we believe in the sovereignty of God and God is over nature and God is over nations. And here we see that God has had enough and the milk has boiled over. It's time to change. So why would God do this finally? Why does God judge nations? Well, for Assyria and for the minor prophets, when you read all the minor prophets, don't you find it interesting that the minor prophets do not throw at the nations the Ten Commandments? Don't you find that interesting? I mean, if I was going to be a minor prophet, I'd say, oh, you... Assyria, thou hast turned your back on the, on the Ten Commandments. Well, they were never for the Ten Commandments. But come, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not have idols. And you'd, you'd think that they'd preach the Ten Commandments at the Edomites and Assyria and, and the Philistines and the, the countries that were coming under judge. But they don't do any of that. Because they are the covenant people that live that way. But what God takes so profound, deep offense at, as you read all the minor prophets, is God takes profound offense at the inhumanity of an empire and the inhumanity of nations. And when a nation becomes inhumane, God's judgment moves against that nation. 
God's judgment comes. God's judgment moves. And God had looked at their way they had become, how corrupt they had become, how they had conquered and said, I'm going to send a scarlet red army and I am going to conquer you. Look, the shields of the soldiers are red. Interestingly, up until that point in history, there had been no army that had red. In fact, it hadn't happened when this was prophesied. We take it for granted that soldiers have red and warriors are clad in scarlet. But up until that point in ancient history, there had not been scarlet and red. But this was a complete change. And, And Nahum saw the armies in scarlet and red, saw the river drying up, saw the detail of the prophecy. And then it would later, of course, happen. The metal chariots flashing on the day they are made ready. The spears, the juniper are brandished. We're ready to go to war. And so we we realize that that God's going to move against the nation. God's going to step in. God's got the... The knowledge, but really what is so offensive to him is the inhumanity of what has taken place and what has happened. So countries may not have the Ten Commandments, but countries are judged by the way they treat the people that are entrusted to them. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? How do I personalize this? Because the inhumanity, how do I work it through? Well, I work it through this way that Jesus Christ is the most perfect reflection of the most perfect reflection of humanity that anybody can stare into the face of Jesus. And our job is to reflect the humanity, the perfect nature of Jesus Christ within our lives. And that's why we should care about injustice. That's why we should treat people with respect. That's why we should honor others around us. Because God takes very deep offense when we treat people in an inhumane way. And our calling is to reflect the very nature, the very heart, the very attitude that our attitude should be that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to be careful. Nahum teaches us not to live a backslidden, fake Christian life. It teaches us that we should be beautiful people that bring good news to a broken world. And it teaches us and reminds us that God is in control over history and God will judge nations as much as As God will judge you and I for our actions, for our lack of actions, for our attitudes. So as we come to the end of this series, we realize that even for now, Nineveh, nothing can heal you. Your wounds... It's fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? 
the final verse. Nothing can heal you. Your wounds are fatal. So why would you carry on reading the minor prophets? Let me finish on this thought. We learn as we've gone through what nine of them We learn so much. First of all, we learn about God's activities. We learn about God is powerful. And the one thing you can take away from this series is that God is all-powerful. He rules. We are theists. We believe in the true God. We believe in God's power. We believe in God's strength. And that we see, whether it's through locusts and whirlwinds and earthquakes and water, that God is Lord over nature and he uses miraculous powers uh, to change and to work and that he's in control of nature. And there is a danger that we forget and often we think that we forget that God is control of this very planet itself. That he's in control of history, the movements of nations, the movements of empires. What God, how God uses nations. He judges them on their inhumane acts and their unjust ways. They may not be um, Christian nations, but they're still judged because God, God sees that. Was it Roger Kipling, of course? who wrote Jungle Book in the great poem he wrote for Queen Victoria on her 60th anniversary of being on the throne. He wrote in the middle of that, let us not forget Nineveh. Because any nation that forgets God is in trouble. Any province that forgets God is in trouble. Any city that forgets God is in trouble. Any family that forgets God is in trouble. And you and I are in trouble if we forget God. His integrity, we learn from all the prophets, the integrity that he's actually predictable, God is. He has justice, and if you step out of his justice, there is punishment, there are consequences. There is mercy And there is pardon. And we see that. We remind ourselves of God's mercy, God's pardon. And God certainly, when you read the prophets, seems to be flexible. (laughs) Perhaps some of us more hyper-Calvalists find that a little more difficult. But we're not fatalistic, you see. But there's a flexibility in the personal relationship. Man repents, God relents. That we come into this living, dynamic, personal relationship with God. Even nations seem to have this. The Lord says, like he said in Jeremiah, the clay, you know, I'm, the, I, I am the, I'm molding you, I'm shaping you. But are you willing to be shaped? Are you willing to be moved? Are you, are you willing to change? If you repent, I will relent. I will show my mercy. I will be with you. So, so when we read all the minor prophets in their poetry, in their, their drama, and their color, and their vividness, we remind ourselves that our relationship with God as a people is dynamic, is, is, is engaging, and that God 
It's not just a religious format that we've joined. You and I are in a dynamic personal relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. And the reason we have that relationship is because Christ died on that cross. And on the third day, he rose again victorious so that you and I can be called sons and daughters of the living God. And so we see Jesus through the prophets. Although they're uncomfortable. And Nahum is probably the most uncomfortable. I think the Anglican Lexium reading through the year in services just mentioned, use it twice. Catholics barely read from it in their readings. And it's, it's, it's been a tough one, this has. Because of the milk that overflows. God's anger. So where shall we land this? At the end of our prophets. Can I challenge you to live a life of not lukewarmness, but live a life and push forward to live a deep devotion for Christ. Keep that race going. Can I challenge you that he transforms our ugliness, whether it's our feet or whatever, into beauty when we live out God's values? Can I remind you who is in charge? God is in charge. And can I remind you That Jesus is the pinnacle of humanity. God hates inhumanity and the inhumane acts. But we are to reflect the beauty of who Jesus is in our speech, in our attitude, in our life, in our marriages, in our business. We are to reflect Jesus. We read the Old Testament in you. Through the lens of Jesus, the great covenant, the redeemer. It's wonderful, isn't it? God's great story. Let's pause and pray. As before I pray, let me say a few words. God is seeking after your heart. And maybe you know that you are um, not living the way that you should, putting it simply. But it is time to live with that devotion, to live with that passion. To live with that commitment. And maybe in the closing moments, maybe you're a visitor or you're just checking this out. Or, and wherever you land in life, I want you to land in the one spot is that you are a passionate, devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm often so afraid that the revivals of our past can linger 
and we can live in a backslidden state. And yet God has given us all the resources we need. Lord, this morning as we've talked about nations, Lord, we pray, God, this morning for Canada. And we pray, God, that you will bring righteousness and justice and blessing and revival to this nation in the name of Jesus. We pray for our own lives now that we would step into and encourage and enjoy that intimate, dynamic relationship with you. And I pray in these closing moments of this service that we, Lord, would um, such our hearts that then the prophets speak to us. But above all, let the, let the great prophet, our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, the, the incarnated Christ, come and minister to us that we may live fully for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.